I have said and written a lot about free will over the years, and I wanted to get all of my thoughts, or my most effective thoughts, all in one place. Many of you find my argument against free will to be very provocative and even off-putting, and many of you mistake it for a philosophical argument that doesn't make contact directly with experience. So I want to see if I can do this all in one pass and actually bring some of you along with me into the end zone here. So here's the starting point. Most people believe that they have a self which enjoys something called freedom of will. And in fact, this feeling of self and the feeling that we have free will are really two sides of the same coin. But here I'm going to focus on free will because in many ways it's easier to deconstruct. Now, I found to my surprise that this is a very sensitive topic. And so here I want to offer the usual disclaimer. If it makes you uncomfortable to think about these things, you need to be the judge of whether this discomfort is healthy and worth pressing into or whether it's actually bad for you. And in the latter case, just skip this journey with me. And it's probably not an accident that many people find the prospect that free will might be an illusion to be provocative, because the idea of free will seems to touch nearly everything people care about. Morality, law, politics, religion, public policy, intimate relationships, feelings of guilt and personal accomplishment. Most of what is distinctly human about us seems to depend on our viewing one another as agents who are capable of free choice. And I say seems to because I don't think it does, really. But it can take a little while to see this. Now, most people believe that the challenge is to reconcile a subjective fact, the fact that we experience free will, with objective reality, the way physical causes and events arise in the universe. But I want you to examine this. What I hope to impress upon you is that the illusion of free will is itself an illusion. There is no illusion of free will. And there are no subjective facts about it to reconcile with the truths of physics and neurophysiology. In fact, our conscious experience is perfectly compatible with a scientific picture of reality that does not stop or change character at the boundary of our skin. Many people worry that the consequences of dispensing with free will must be negative. Now, obviously, this wouldn't suggest that free will actually exists. But generally speaking, this claim about negative outcomes isn't true either. Losing one's belief in free will can actually have very positive consequences. For one, it removes any rational basis for hating people. And we'll explore that later on. Let's begin at the beginning. The popular conception of free will rests on two assumptions. The first is that each of us was free to think and act differently than we did in the past. We chose A, but we could have chosen B. You became an accountant, but you could have decided to be a firefighter. You had chocolate ice cream last night, but you could have picked vanilla. It certainly seems to most of us that this is the world we're living in. The second assumption is that we are the conscious source of many of our thoughts and actions in the present. 
your sense of deciding what to do in each moment seems to be the actual origin of your subsequent behavior. You feel you want to reach and pick up an object, and then you do. The conscious part of you that wants and intends and perceives seems to be in control of at least some of your thoughts and actions. However, there is every reason to believe that both of these assumptions are false. Of course, there's very little disagreement over the fact that events have causes. Everything that arises seems to be born into existence by some previous state of the universe. Now, maybe there's some place to stand where all of this proves to be an illusion. Maybe there's some way to view the cosmos as a whole, or reality itself, and to say that nothing has ever actually happened. Right? That change itself, the process of cause and effect itself, is an illusion. But let's leave that possibility aside for the moment. Most of the time, things certainly seem to happen. Lightning strikes a tree and a fire starts. A few lines of computer code cause your phone to ring. Right? People are born, they grow old, and then they die. Everywhere we look, we see patterns of events, and all these events have prior causes, which is to say they depend materially and functionally and logically on other events that preceded them in time. And most relevantly for our purposes, all of our conscious experiences, our thoughts, intentions, desires, and the actions and choices that result from them, are caused by events of which we are not conscious and which we did not bring into being. You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick your genes, therefore. And you didn't pick the environment into which you were born. And yet the totality of these facts determines who you are in each moment and what you do in the next. And even if you think that you have an immaterial soul that somehow animates this machinery, you didn't pick your soul. The next thing you think and do can only emerge from this totality of prior causes. And it can only emerge in one of two ways. Lawfully, that is, deterministically, like one domino just getting knocked over by another, or randomly. Now, randomness is a very interesting concept, and it's not clear how pervasive it might be. There are arguments against determinism, especially in quantum mechanics, that suggest that subatomic particles themselves make, quote, free choices, which is to say there's nothing in the prior history of the universe that tells them what to do next. And if what a particle does next doesn't depend on the past, well, then there's no theory that can predict what it will do next. I'm not taking a position against this at the level of particles. But I am claiming that this kind of independence from prior causes would not give people the psychological freedom they think they have. For two reasons. The first is that there's every indication that larger systems like human brains behave more deterministically. But more important, randomness of any sort would not give people freedom of will. There is no will in randomness. If you ever did something that was truly random, that had no relationship to prior states of your brain, if it literally came out of nowhere, that wouldn't be what you or anyone means by free will. You would think, what the hell did I just do, right? And why did I do it? Such an action would be precisely the sort of thing we would deem out of character, because it would be, by definition, out of character. 
To be in character is to be discernibly in line with prior tendencies. Right? It follows a pattern. Something truly random would be unanalyzable. Right? There, there would literally be no answer to the question of why you did it. With true randomness, there is no why. That's not what we mean by will, much less a free one. Right? That is not psychological continuity through time. The problem is that neither determinism nor randomness, nor any combination of the two, justifies the feeling that most people have that goes by the name of free will. The feeling that they're free to think and do more or less whatever they want in the present, in a way that allows them to be something other than a mere concatenation of causes or mysterious influences. To be something other than a natural phenomenon. People don't want to believe that they are in any sense like a wave breaking on the shore. But this is how causes propagate, or seem to propagate. Many scientists and philosophers have acknowledged the problem here, but most appear to think that we must live with the illusion of free will, or euphemize about it. And I'm arguing that this is a mistake. So, what do most people mean by free will? Well, there's controversy over this among philosophers and scientists. But I think the central false intuition is pretty clear. And it results from how our subjectivity is structured, or appears to be structured. Again, the feeling of having free will is directly connected to the feeling of being a self. With respect to free will, it amounts to this. Most people feel that the conscious part of their minds, the one that is experiencing their experience, thinking their thoughts, feeling their feelings, is in control of their mental life and behavior in some real way. They feel that they are the source of their intentions and actions, not merely that these mental and physical states are arising in their bodies somehow, but that they are initiated by their conscious minds in some way. The fact that something's happening in a person's body isn't really the point. Right? People do not feel free to beat their hearts or to stop beating them. They don't feel that they're causing their cells to divide or to metabolize energy. They don't feel they're in control of their livers, right? but they do feel that they're the source of their thoughts and voluntary actions. And at any given moment, they feel that they are free to think and do something else. Now, perhaps you feel this. Perhaps you feel that if you could rewind the movie of your life and return the universe to the precise state it was in a moment ago, you could think and behave differently. I think there's little question that most people presume this about themselves and about other people. Not philosophically, but implicitly, as a felt sense of how they exist in the world. This seems to be the very essence of what it means to hold ourselves and others morally responsible for our actions. If someone does something to harm you intentionally, you feel they shouldn't have done it, right? They could and should have done otherwise. And you have a grievance against them that is very different from how you feel about a malfunctioning piece of machinery or a gust of wind that might produce the same harm. Right, so the reason why discussions about free will are so fraught is that declaring free will to be an illusion 
strikes at the very heart of what people feel is true about their own subjectivity in each moment, and it seems to have implications for a wide variety of moral norms. As we'll see, the implications are not what many people think. I'll argue that our morality actually improves once we recognize that free will doesn't make any sense. But again, the consequences of believing in free will or not are quite separable from any claim about what is true. One simply can't argue for the reality of free will based on the imagined good effects of believing in it. And with respect to what's true, the problem is there's absolutely no reason to believe that free will exists. There's no objective reason, and there's no subjective reason either. In the end, a belief in free will is analogous to believing that if you rewound this piece of audio, I might finish this sentence some other way. As I said, traditionally, this has been viewed as a philosophical impasse. We know we have free will because we experience it directly, but we just can't see how to make sense of it in terms of physical causation. But as I hope to show you, there is no impasse because there's no experiential reason to believe in free will either. The experiential you, the conscious witness of your inner life, the one who's hearing these words right now, you aren't the author of your thoughts, intentions, and actions. Rather, thoughts, intentions, and subsequent actions simply arise and are noticed. But this doesn't mean there's no difference between voluntary and involuntary behavior. There is. Let's take a closer look at this. Reach for something and pick it up now. And pay attention to what the experience is like. Now, whether you're aware of it or not, Voluntary behavior is structured by intention and expectation. Your brain produces a forward-looking model of what's about to happen. And if the model is violated, you'll notice. You know what it's like to reach for something and to accidentally knock it over, for instance. The successful manipulation of an object feels different than just banging into it, and it produces different results. And voluntary actions can be consciously interrupted which is to say we can experience an impulse to stop them. And this impulse is effective. And of course, they can be deterred by other people and by legal penalties. An involuntary action, such as a muscle spasm or a reflex or a seizure or tripping and falling, can't be deterred. So there are many differences here. Okay, what someone does voluntarily says more about him about what he wants, for instance, and about what he's likely to do in the future than an involuntary action does. Doing something on purpose reveals something about one's purpose in life. We don't need a concept of free will to notice these differences. And as I'll make clear later on, most of our ethical judgments remain unchanged when we give up the illusion of free will. But not everything remains unchanged. And a few things that do change are actually quite important. Again, I want to flag what is novel about my argument here. Most philosophers and scientists believe we have an experience of free will that is undeniable. And the challenge is to make sense of it in terms of a picture of causality that seems not to allow for it, whether that's deterministic or random. I'm claiming that we don't have the experience we think we have. There is no experience of free will. So let's look more closely at our experience. Consider how your thoughts arise. 
because they're the basis for most of your complex behavior, certainly your most deliberate behavior. If you pay attention to the process of thinking, you'll see that your thoughts simply appear in consciousness, very much like my words. In fact, you can observe that you no more decide the next thing you think than you decide the next thing I say. I mean, what are you going to think next? You don't know. Yet your thoughts determine what you want and intend and do next. Your thoughts determine your goals and whether or not you believe you've met them. They determine what you say to other people and what you don't say. In fact, thoughts determine almost everything that makes you human. Now, most people feel that they are the thinker of their thoughts and therefore their author. And this is one way of describing the feeling of self. Subjectively speaking, as a matter of experience, there's no thinker to be found in the mind apart from thoughts themselves. There's no subject in the middle of experience. Everything, including thoughts and intentions and counterthoughts and counterintentions, is arising all on its own. And the feeling that there's a thinker in addition to the flow of thought is what it feels like to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. It's the feeling of being identified with the train of thought that's passing through consciousness in this moment. But if you pay attention to how thoughts arise, you'll see that they simply appear, quite literally out of nowhere. And you're not free to choose them before they appear. That would require that you think them before you think them. So here's the question. If you can't control your next thought, if you can't decide what it will be before it arises, and if you can't prevent it from arising, where is your freedom of will? At this moment, you might be thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Here is what I'm talking about. You didn't choose that thought either. If you're confused by what I'm saying, you didn't produce your confusion. You didn't decide to be confused. Conversely, if you understand what I'm saying and you find it interesting, you didn't create that state of mind either. And if your mind is just wandering to thoughts of lunch and you missed half of what I just said, you didn't choose to be distracted. Everything is just happening, including your thoughts and intentions and desires and most deliberate actions. You are part of the universe, and there is no place for you to stand outside of its causal structure. And as we'll see, there's no one to stand there either. Right? You're not a self in the end. You're certainly not a subject in the middle of experience or on the edge of it. You're not on the riverbank watching the stream of consciousness. Because as a matter of experience, there is only the stream, and you are identical to it. This is not a metaphysical statement. I'm not talking about how consciousness relates to the physical universe. I'm talking about your actual experience in this moment. As a matter of experience, you are not having an experience from someplace outside of experience. There is only experience. You're not on the edge of your life looking in. You're not sitting in the theater of your mind watching a life movie. And the feeling that you are, the feeling that you can stand apart from everything that's happening, 
And this feeling of being free to choose the next thing you do, or the next thing you notice, the next thing you pay attention to, this feeling is itself part of the movie, yet more appearances in consciousness. There's just consciousness and its contents in this moment. Again, this isn't just a philosophical point. Most people think that free will really exists, and it's just hard to map onto the physics of things. Or it doesn't exist, and we just have to admit that we're living in the grip of a powerful illusion. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying free will doesn't exist, and in fact it's such an incoherent concept that it's impossible to say what would have to be true of the world for it to exist. There really is no way for causes to arise that would make sense of this notion of free will. But I'm making a much more fundamental claim about the nature of conscious experience. I'm saying there is no illusion of free will. If you pay attention, you can see that your experience is totally compatible with the truth of determinism, or determinism plus randomness. Let's run a little experiment. Just close your eyes and take a few deep breaths. And now think of a movie. It can be one you've seen or just one you know the name of, right? It doesn't have to be good, it can be bad. Whatever comes to mind, doesn't matter. And pay attention to what this experience is like. A few films have probably come to mind. Just pick one. And pay attention to what the experience of choosing is like. Now, the first thing to notice is that this is as free a choice as you are ever going to make in your life. Right? You are completely free. You have all the films in the world to choose from, and you can pick anyone you want. And you can pause this audio and take as long as you want. Now, let's do that again. Right? I want you to become sensitive to this process. So forget the first film and choose another. And again, pay attention to what you actually experience here. What is it like to choose? What is it like to make this completely free choice? You got a new film? Okay. Do it one more time. Right? Just clean the slate, think of a few more films, and choose one. Did you see any evidence for free will here? Because if it's not here, it's not anywhere. Right? So we better be able to find it here. So let's look for it. Well, first, let's set aside all the films you've never seen or heard about and whose names and imagery are unknown to you. Right? Needless to say, you couldn't pick one of those. And there's no freedom in that, obviously because you couldn't have picked one of those if your life depended on it. But then there are many other films whose names are well known to you, many of which you've seen, but which didn't occur to you to pick. For instance, you absolutely know that The Wizard of Oz is a film, but you just didn't think of it. And if you thought of The Wizard of Oz, apologies, right? but you get my point. You can swap in The Seventh Seal or Mission Impossible or The Deer Hunter there. And if you're hearing this for the first time and you thought of all those films, well then we really are living in a simulation. And it's all about you, apparently. So consider the few films that came to mind. 
right, in light of all the films that might have come to mind, but didn't. And ask yourself, were you free to choose that which did not occur to you to choose? As a matter of neurophysiology, your Wizard of Oz circuits were not in play a few moments ago. For reasons that you can't possibly know and could not control, based on the state of your brain, the Wizard of Oz was not an option, even though you absolutely know about this film. And if we could return your brain to the state it was in a moment ago, and account for all the noise in the system, adding back any contributions of randomness, whatever they were, you would fail to think of the Wizard of Oz again and again and again until the end of time. Where is the freedom in that? It's important to see that whether the universe is fully determined or it admits of randomness, the picture is the same. Determinism gives you no freedom, obviously. It would just be mere biochemical clockwork. But randomness gives you no freedom either. If you knew that your next choice of a film would be the result of a random process, some quantum roll of the dice, that would be the antithesis of what most people mean by free will. There's no will in that. And if that same random influence appeared a trillion times in a row, just by chance, you would think of the same film a trillion times in a row, just by chance. I mean, no matter how we think about causation, whether things are determined or random, or some combination of the two, there's no place for you as the conscious subject to stand that isn't downstream of causes that you can't inspect or anticipate. Everything is just appearing in consciousness. Again, focus on the experience here. You can forget about the metaphysics. Free will is an enduring problem for philosophy and science for one reason. People think they experience it. They feel they have it. Do you experience it? Again, if it's not here, it's not anywhere. The only constraint you've been given is to think of a film. And you can pick anyone you want. And you can take as long as you want. It is likely that every other choice you have made in your life has been more constrained than this one. What job to take, who to marry, whether to have kids, who to vote for. Most choices in life are much more obviously constrained by other variables than this one. So if you're not free to simply pick a film right now, I don't know where you're going to find free will anywhere in your life. So really pay attention to the experience. Do it one more time. Pick a film, any film. Okay, so we can use my films here to describe the experience. I thought of Chinatown and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Alien. And let's say I thought, I'm going to go with Chinatown. Right, but then at the last second, I thought, nope, I'm going to go with Alien. This is the sort of decision that motivates the idea of free will. You go back and forth between two or more options, and then you settle on one without suffering any obvious coercion or pressure from the outside world. It's just you and your thoughts, right? and you appear to be doing everything. So, I pick Alien over Chinatown. I appeared entirely free to make that choice. But when I look closely, I can see that I'm in no position to know why these films occurred to me in the first place. 
or why I chose Alien over Chinatown. I mean, I might have some additional story to tell about my choice. I might now think, well, everyone says Chinatown's a great film, but it's actually a little boring. So I picked Alien, which is not boring. But of course, we know from a vast psychological literature that these sorts of explanations are often pure fiction. And when people are manipulated in a lab, they seem to always have a story about why they did what they did, and it often bears no relationship to what actually influenced them. It's simply a fact that our judgments about the causes of our own behavior are often unreliable. Generally, this comes courtesy of the left hemisphere of the brain. But even if I'm right in this instance about why I picked Alien over Chinatown, I'm in no position to know why my memory of Chinatown being boring had the effect that it did. Why didn't it have the opposite effect? Why didn't I think, I'm going to go with a classic, whether it's boring or not? The thing to notice is that you, as the conscious witness of your inner life, are not making decisions. All you can do is witness decisions once they're made. No matter how many times you go back and forth between two options, no matter how many other thoughts arise to give color to this process, giving way to one option or the other, the process itself is irreducibly mysterious from your point of view. And whether these mental events are fully determined or in part random, the experience is the same. Everything is just happening on its own. Now I say pick a film, and there's this moment before anything has changed for you. And then the names of films begin percolating at the margins of consciousness, and you have no control over which appear. None. Really, none. Can you feel that? You can't pick them before they pick themselves. Someone else might as well be whispering the names of films in your ear for all that you did to summon them. And the same can be said for the process of choosing among the candidates that do appear. Even if you go back and forth between two choices for an hour, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you can't know why you stop on the one that you finally choose. If you pay attention to how your thoughts arise and how decisions actually get made, you'll see that there's no evidence for free will. Not only no evidence, it's impossible to make sense of the claim that free will might exist. What could it refer to? Forget about the physics of things. What in your experience could it refer to? Everything is simply springing out of the darkness. What will you think, or intend, or want, or ignore, or forget, and then suddenly remember, next? Our experience of being and acting in the world is totally compatible with the truth of determinism or determinism plus randomness. And this has implications not only for our sense of self, but for our ethics and our view of other people. And this insight can be extraordinarily freeing psychologically. It can lead to much greater compassion, both for other people and for ourselves. And far from causing us to become passive, an insight into the illusoriness of free will can allow us to behave much more intelligently in life, as we will see. I've been arguing that there's no such thing as free will. So what is there? Well, there's luck, both good and bad, and there's what we make of it. 
Actually, that's not quite true. What you make of your luck is also just more luck. Once again, you didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the society into which you were born. There's not a cell in your body or brain that you, the conscious subject, created. Nor is there a single influence coming from the outside world that you brought into being. And yet, everything you think and do arises from this ocean of prior causes. So, what you do with your luck, and the very tools with which you do it, including the level of effort and discipline you manage to summon in each moment, is more in the way of luck. I mean, how do you explain your capacity for effort? How do you explain when you're lazy? How do you explain when you're lazy, but then you suddenly get inspired and make great effort? You can't. The you that experiences sudden inspiration, or a doubling of effort, or a failure of nerve, the you that rises to the occasion, or chokes, isn't in the driver's seat. In each moment, there's a mystery at your back, and it's producing everything that you can notice. Your thoughts, intentions, desires, inhibitions, and all of the behaviors and course corrections that follow from them. This is an objective truth about your subjective experience. You can't inspect your causes. Now, most people resist this idea, seemingly at any intellectual cost. And yet this single insight is the antidote to arrogance and hatred, and it provides a profound basis for compassion, both for other people and for oneself. It's the basis for real forgiveness, again, for other people and for oneself. It is literally the path to redemption, and it's the only view of human nature that cuts through the logic of retribution, this notion of punishment as justified vengeance. And it allows us to simply consider what actually works in changing people's behavior for the better, so that we can achieve outcomes in the world that we actually want. But before we get into the ethics, we need to clear away some more confusion. At this point, many people begin to wonder about the importance of choice and decision-making. If there's no free will, how do we do anything? And why do anything? Why not just wait around to see what happens? There is no free will, but choices matter. And this isn't a paradox. Your desires, intentions, and decisions arise out of the present state of the universe, which includes your brain and your soul, if such a thing exists, along with all of their influences. Your mental states are part of a causal framework. So your choices matter, whether or not they're products of a brain or a soul, because they're often the proximate cause of your actions. Imagine that I want to learn to speak Mandarin. Okay, how is that going to happen? It's not going to happen by accident. I'll need to attend classes, or hire a native-speaking tutor, or travel to China. I'll need to study and practice, and this will entail a lot of effort. I'll get frustrated and embarrassed by my failures, and I'll have to overcome my frustration and embarrassment and keep learning. My decision to learn Mandarin and all of the efforts that follow, if they persist long enough, will be the cause of my speaking Mandarin at some point in the future. Badly, I am sure. It's not that I was destined to speak Mandarin 
regardless of my thoughts and actions. Determinism isn't fatalism. Choices, reasoning, discipline, all of these things play obvious roles in our lives, despite the fact that they're determined by prior causes. And again, adding randomness to this machinery doesn't change anything. But the reality is, is that I show no signs of making an effort to learn Mandarin. It simply isn't a priority for me. Am I free to make it a priority? Well, in some ways, yes, but not in the crucial way that the common notion of free will requires. I can't account for why I don't want to speak Mandarin more than I do. I can't decide to make learning this language my top priority when it simply isn't my top priority. And if it suddenly became the most important thing in my life, I wouldn't have created this change in myself. I would be a mere witness to this change. It would come over me like a virus. If I read an article tomorrow that convinces me that the best use of the next few years of my life is to become competent in Mandarin, I will not be able to account for why this article had the effect that it did. I've already read articles like that, and they haven't moved me. If the next one does, where is the freedom in that? It would be like being pushed off a cliff and then claiming that I'm free to fall. The fact that I might enjoy the feeling of the wind in my hair doesn't change this situation. And so it is with any other influence. A conversation with another person, or indeed a conversation with oneself, simply has the effect that it has, and not some other effect. You are free to do an almost infinite number of things today. Free in the sense that no one will try to stop you from doing these things, or put you in prison if you do them. But you're not free to want what you don't in fact want, or to want what you want more than you want it. You're not free to notice what you won't notice, or to remember what you've truly forgotten. Again, consider your experience in this moment. Are you going to spend the rest of the day, and tomorrow, and the day after that, and onward for days uncountable, struggling to master a skill that you don't happen to care about? Are you going to learn Mandarin, or the violin, or fencing? Are you going to take up rock collecting? Why aren't you more interested in rocks? There are people who are all in for rocks. Why aren't you one of these people? If you suddenly became one of these people, and began spending all of your free time looking for interesting rocks, freely doing what you most want to do, you're now rock collecting to your heart's content. Where is the freedom in that? And if your interest suddenly dissipates, such that you no longer care about rocks, where is the freedom in that? You are being played by the universe. But choices still matter, because causes matter. Change matters and a capacity to make change matters. Biological evolution and cultural progress have increased our ability to get what we want out of life and to avoid what we don't want. A person who can reason effectively and plan for the future and choose his words carefully and regulate his negative emotions and play fair with strangers and participate in various cultural institutions is very different from a person who can do none of those things. But these abilities do not lend credence to the traditional notion of free will. People sometimes ask, well, if there's no free will, then why are you trying to convince anyone of anything? People are just going to believe whatever they believe. 
Your very effort to convince them that they don't have free will is proof that you think they have it. Again, this is confusion between determinism and fatalism. Reasoning is possible, not because you're free to think however you want, but because you are not free. Reason makes slaves of us all. To be convinced by an argument is to be subjugated by it. It's to be forced to believe it, regardless of your preferences. Think about what it's like not to know something and then to know it, to learn something despite your prior ignorance or presuppositions to the contrary. To be placed in the grip of an argument that is valid and true, to be led step by step over foreign ground, without spotting an error, without seeing any place to put a foot or a hand to arrest your progress, to then be delivered to the necessary conclusion is the antithesis of freedom. You're about as free as any prisoner who was ever led to the gallows. It's the lack of freedom that makes reasoning possible. That's why I know an argument that worked on me should also work on you. And if it shouldn't work on you, it shouldn't have worked on me either. Reasoning is all about constraints. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Where is the freedom in that? It matters that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And it matters that we each can be made to understand that by being forced to think under the same logical constraints. Are you free not to understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Not if you do, in fact, understand it. Are you free to understand it if you don't understand it? Again, no. Right? Not until the understanding itself dawns in your mind. So, whether you understand something or not isn't under your control. But the difference matters, absolutely. And knowledge on all fronts matters, absolutely. It's every bit as important as we imagine it to be. In fact, it's probably more important than most people imagine it to be. The physicist David Deutsch has argued that knowledge can produce any change in the universe compatible with its laws, because if a change can't be accomplished with sufficient knowledge, that could only mean that some law of nature prevents it. Think about that for a moment. The claim is that anything that is possible can be accomplished by the right understanding. Otherwise, it's not possible. According to Deutsch, given the requisite knowledge, you could take any arbitrary region of space, sweep together its stray hydrogen atoms, transmute them into heavier elements through the process of nuclear fusion, use those elements to assemble the smallest possible machine capable of building all other structures, and then produce intelligent creatures, vastly more intelligent and sensitive than ourselves, atom by atom. All that is lacking, at every stage along the way, is an understanding of how to do these things, which is to say that all that is lacking is knowledge. So, what our minds do potentially has cosmic significance. We could destroy ourselves in the next century, or we could live for millions of years and populate the rest of the galaxy. The only difference will be what we do with our minds in the meantime. But again, none of this causality requires, or even admits of, freedom of will. Again, it's the lack of freedom that makes reasoning possible. Anyone who thinks that 2 plus 2 equals 5 
will find no end to his troubles, because the world will oppose him at every point, beginning with his own fingers. You are part of reality, whatever it is altogether. There is no scope for freedom of will here. The freedom comes in recognizing what the mind is like when you no longer pretend to be controlling experience. That's freedom. I've been trying to persuade you that free will is an illusion, and I'm hoping to persuade you that understanding this truth about the mind actually matters, in that it can change our lives for the better. But understanding it conceptually is one thing. Experiencing the truth of it directly is another. And that's where meditation comes in. The point is not merely to think new thoughts about the self or about free will or to acquire a new set of beliefs. The purpose of meditation is to become sensitive to what the mind is actually like in each moment. Recognizing what consciousness is like prior to the sense of self can be a profound source of psychological freedom. And relinquishing the notion of free will can change our ethics very much for the better and directly reduce negative states of mind, like hatred. However, many people worry that dispensing with the idea of free will must have negative effects on our lives. For instance, what about love? How can we love people if we don't see them as the true authors of their actions? Well, in my experience, we can quite easily, because loving other people isn't a matter of fixating on the underlying causes of their behavior, or even on their control over their behavior. Rather, love is a matter of enjoying their company and truly caring about them. We want those we love to be happy, and we generally want to feel the way we feel when we're with them. I mean, think about what it's like for you to see someone you love smile or laugh. Think of how enjoyable that is and how contagious. And think of how involuntary this response is, too. There's no free will in a smile or laughter. In fact, they're only real to the degree that they are involuntary. The difference between happiness and suffering does not depend on free will. Indeed, it has no logical relationship to it. In loving others and in seeking happiness ourselves, we're primarily concerned with the character of conscious experience. But there's an asymmetry here that's interesting, because a negative emotion like hatred is powerfully governed by the illusion of free will. To hate someone, you really must be taken in by the idea that they could and should have behaved differently than they did. I mean, we don't truly hate storms or avalanches or mosquitoes or the flu. We might use the term hate to describe our aversion to the suffering that these things cause, but we hate other human beings in a very different sense. True hatred requires that we view a person as the ultimate author of his thoughts and actions. Love merely demands that we care about others and enjoy being with them. It may be hard to see this difference at first, but I encourage you to explore it. It's one of the most beautiful asymmetries to be found anywhere and it extends to a much larger consideration of good and evil. Consider the case of Charles Whitman, who committed one of the worst mass murders in U.S. history in 1966. He started by killing his mother and his wife, by stabbing each of them in the heart, 
And then the next morning, he climbed a tower at the University of Texas with a small arsenal and spent the next two hours shooting people at random, killing 14 and wounding 32, before he was finally shot and killed by the police. So, at first glance, Whitman would appear to be the quintessence of human evil. But he left a suicide note in which he complained that he found his behavior totally inexplicable. He said that over the preceding months, his mind had just been flooded by irrational thoughts and violent impulses that he could no longer resist. He also had terrible headaches, and he recommended that an autopsy be performed and that his brain be examined for signs of physical disease. Well, his brain was examined, and it turns out he had a large tumor in his hypothalamus that was pressing on his amygdala, and a tumor in this location could well have caused his violent impulses. So, notice how this changes things. When we learn that a mass murderer had a brain tumor, one whose position in the brain actually seems to explain his violent behavior, our moral intuitions shift dramatically. A person with a brain tumor is unlucky. It doesn't matter what he did. He is a victim of biology. If you had a glioblastoma pressing on your amygdala every minute of the day, there's no telling what you would do. So I'm arguing that a brain tumor is just a special case of our having insight into the fact that physical events give rise to thoughts and actions. If we fully understood the neurophysiology of any murderer's brain, it would seem just as exculpatory as finding a tumor in it. If we could see how the wrong genes were being relentlessly transcribed, and how this person's experiences in life had sculpted the microstructure of his brain in just such a way to produce states of mind which were guaranteed to make him violent, if we could see this causality clearly, the basis for placing blame on him in any deep sense, would disappear. However, it's true that the urge for retribution remains difficult to fully dispense with, because we have clearly evolved to have a psychological need for it. The historian and anthropologist Jared Diamond has written about this and described the high price we sometimes pay when our desire for vengeance goes unfulfilled. He compared the experiences of two people he knew personally here. His friend Daniel, a New Guinea Highlander who avenged the death of an uncle, and his own father-in-law, who had had the opportunity to kill the man who murdered his entire family during the Holocaust, but who opted instead to turn the man over to the police. And after spending only a year in jail, this killer was released. And on Diamond's account, the consequences of taking revenge in the first case and of foregoing it in the second could not have been more stark. And while there's obviously much to be said against the vendetta culture of the New Guinea Highlands, apparently Daniel's revenge brought him exquisite relief, whereas Diamond's father-in-law spent the last 60 years of his life, 60 years, according to Diamond, tormented by regret and guilt. So it's simply undeniable that vengeance answers to some very powerful psychological need in many of us. And no doubt there are evolutionary reasons for this. But like almost anything else that we've evolved to feel or do, it remains an open question as to whether these tendencies are good 
and worth maintaining. Yes, we are deeply disposed to view people as the authors of their actions, and to hold them responsible for the wrongs they do us, and to feel that these transgressions should be punished. And when a person causes the worst types of harm to innocent people, many of us naturally feel that he should be made to suffer or forfeit his life. But it remains to be seen how a scientifically informed system of justice might steward these impulses. It seems very likely to me that a full account of the causes of human behavior would diminish our desire for retribution. I doubt, for instance, that Diamond's father-in-law would have suffered the same anguish if his family had been trampled by an elephant and that elephant had been set free. Right? He wouldn't have spent 60 years feeling like it was the greatest failing of his life that he hadn't killed that elephant when he had the opportunity. By the same logic, we can assume that his regret would have been significantly eased if he had learned that his family's killer had actually lived a flawlessly moral life until a virus had begun destroying the frontal lobes of his brain and that he had been a character like Charles Whitman, another victim of biology. We can acknowledge the difference between voluntary and involuntary action, and the responsibilities of an adult versus those of a child, and the difference between sanity and insanity, or between a troubled conscience and a clear one, without indulging the illusion of free will. We can also admit that in certain contexts, punishment might be the best way to motivate people to behave themselves, and to deter crime. The utility of punishment in specific cases is an empirical question that's well worth answering, and nothing in my account of free will precludes this. How can we ask that other people behave themselves, and even punish them for not behaving, when they are not the ultimate causes of their actions? Well, we can and should do this when doing it has the desired effect, namely increasing the well-being of all concerned. The demands we place upon one another are also part of the totality of causes that determine human behavior. This speaks to the power of incentives, both positive and negative, and of rules and norms, generally. Making demands on children, for instance, is a necessary part of their learning to regulate their selfish impulses and to function in society. And we don't have to believe that children possess free will to value the difference between a child who is considerate of the feelings of others and one who behaves like a wild animal. But it is true that the more closely one looks at the concept of moral responsibility, the more paradoxical it becomes, as we're about to see. Okay, so let's return to the issue of moral responsibility. The great worry is that an honest discussion of the underlying causes of human behavior appears to leave no room for notions of right and wrong and good and evil. In fact, the Supreme Court of the United States has worried about this and called free will a, quote, universal and persistent foundation for our system of law, and has said that determinism is, quote, inconsistent with the underlying precepts of our criminal justice system. So this idea of free will seems to be doing a lot of work in the world. And it does psychological work as well. Imagine that you're taking a nap in a park somewhere and are awakened by an unfamiliar sound. You open your eyes and you see a large grizzly bear charging at you from across the lawn. Now, it should be easy enough to understand that you have a problem. And if we swap the bear for a man holding an axe, 
The problem changes in a few interesting ways, but the sudden appearance of free will in the brain of your attacker is not one of them. Let's say you survive this encounter, but are seriously injured. Perhaps you lose your hand. So whether in the presence of a man or a bear, you have had a terrifying ordeal, and you've suffered lasting physical harm. But your subsequent experience is likely to depend far too much, in my view, on the species of your attacker. Imagine what it would be like to see the man who almost killed you with an axe on the witness stand during his trial. If you're like most people, you might be overcome by feelings of hatred so intense that they would constitute a further trauma. You might spend years fantasizing about this man's death. How much time would you spend hating the bear? What would it be like to see it lounging happily at the zoo? You might even bring your friends and family to look at it just for the fun of it. Which state of mind would you rather have? The bear was just being a bear. What else is a grizzly bear going to do when it finds you sleeping in the park? The man, on the other hand, is endowed with free will, or so you imagine. He could and should have done otherwise. The difference between these two views largely accounts for the difference in the way you feel about what happened. So many people imagine that a belief in free will is necessary for thinking about morality and for getting what we want out of life. But the truth is, with or without free will, there is still a difference between suffering and happiness. And the difference matters as much as it ever does. I no more want to be eaten by a bear than I want to be killed by a man with an axe. These are both very good things to avoid. And we can avoid such things. And we can encourage people to be as good and as reasonable as they can possibly be. We can maintain a strong sense of morality and an effective criminal justice system without lying to ourselves about the origins of human behavior. What is it that we condemn in other people, both morally and legally? It's the conscious intention to do harm. Why is a conscious decision to harm another person particularly blameworthy? Because consciousness is the context in which the global properties of our minds seem most active. Consciousness is where our beliefs and desires and goals and prejudices get together. Our conscious, premeditated behavior tends to say the most about us, about what we want, about how we're trying to get the world to conform to our wants. And it says the most about what we're likely to do in the future. If you decide to kill your neighbor after weeks of deliberation and internet research and debate with your friends, well, then killing your neighbor reflects the sort of person you really are. The point is not that you are the sole independent cause of your actions. After all, you didn't make yourself. The point is that, for whatever reason, you have the mind of a murderer. You're not ultimately responsible for your mind. Again, when we look at the details, we see that you're not even slightly responsible for it. In the same way that a grizzly bear isn't responsible for the fact that it's a grizzly bear. But a bear really is a bear, and it really will eat you. If you see one on your doorstep today, you won't have to attribute free will to it to be concerned. Now, certain criminals are more dangerous than bears, and we have to lock them away in prison to keep them from harming us. 
the moral justification for doing this is entirely straightforward. Everyone will be better off this way. But I would argue that retribution doesn't make much sense. The idea of punishing people because they deserve it doesn't make much sense. We don't seek retribution against bears. In fact, that hasn't always been true. The book of Exodus says that if an ox kills a man or a woman, the ox must be stoned to death, and its flesh cannot be eaten. And throughout the Middle Ages, Christians used to conduct trials for animals that injured or killed people or destroyed crops. These animals were even represented by lawyers. In fact, there's a record of a lawyer who was representing a large family of rats, and he argued that his clients couldn't appear in court because there were so many cats about seeking to do them mischief. For centuries, animals of all kinds were publicly executed for their crimes. This happened in the United States as recently as 1916, when a circus elephant named Mary killed her handler, and the good people of Tennessee decided to hang her from a railroad crane. Thousands of people turned out for the lynching of an elephant, and judging from the pictures, they were apparently quite satisfied that justice had been done. Now, of course, this seems bizarre to us now, but this history should indicate how prone to confusion we are on this point. This is not to rule out the possibility that certain punishments might be practically necessary in that they could be the best way to influence human behavior, all things considered. One difference between most people and most grizzly bears is that people can be persuaded by the mere idea of punishment. So some punishments might be necessary, but thinking about the ethics of this is very different from vengeance or retribution. Dispensing with the illusion of free will allows us to focus on things that actually matter, like protecting innocent people and deterring crime and assessing risk and mitigating suffering. I'm not arguing that everyone is not guilty by reason of insanity or that there are no gradations of moral responsibility, the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter, for instance, or between the moral responsibilities of an adult and those of a child. These distinctions are important to make, but they have nothing to do with free will. They have to do with the total character of a person's mind, and this is largely what determines how he will behave in the future. And not thinking about this clearly has consequences. In the United States, there are 13-year-olds serving life sentences in prison, not because we've determined that they can't be rehabilitated, but because some judge or jury felt that they truly deserved this punishment as retribution because they were the true independent cause of their actions. And it seems to me that there's a lot of moral philosophy yet to be done in this space. I think there are some real paradoxes here to be thought through. Imagine that a golfer is attempting to sink a very short putt, and let's say he misses it. What should we think about his responsibility for missing it? And what does it mean to say that he could have made it, or that he should have made it? Well, if he's a terrible golfer who usually misses putts of that length, we really wouldn't hold him responsible. And we wouldn't be tempted to say that he should have made it. He could have made it, perhaps, but his making it might have been more a matter of luck than anything else. Consider what we would think about a much better golfer 
who usually makes putts of that length. Well, then we might say he could have and should have made it. And the failing is really on him, in some sense. And there's, of course, a moral application to this principle. When a young child misbehaves, for instance, even if he causes serious harm, we don't hold him responsible in the same way that we would hold an adult responsible. And so it would be with somebody who has brain damage of some kind. When a healthy adult misbehaves, we're tempted to say that he could and should have behaved differently. But a paradox begins to loom here. Because what would we say when the best golfer in the world misses a very short putt? Surely this is the person who really can shoulder the responsibility for missing it. I mean, if anyone should make a putt of that length, it's this person, because he can generally be counted upon to make a thousand such putts in a row. So what are we going to think when he misses one? What are we actually saying when we claim that he should have made that putt, the one he actually missed? The truth is, we aren't referencing that putt at all. We're saying that he's made countless similar putts in the past, and we can generally count on him to perform this way in the future, provided that he tries and doesn't suffer some neurological injury, and so forth. However, we're also saying that he would have made this putt had something not gotten in his way, right? He had the general ability, after all, to make this putt. So something went wrong. Why would the best golfer on earth miss a short putt? Because some condition necessary for his making it was absent. What if that condition were sufficient effort on his part, of a sort that he's generally capable of making? Why didn't he make that effort? Well, the answer is really the same, because some condition necessary for his making that effort was absent. From a scientific perspective, his failure to try is just another missed putt. He tried precisely as hard as he did. The next time he might try harder. But this time, with the universe and his brain exactly as they were, he couldn't have tried any harder. To say that he really should have made the putt, or tried harder, is just a way of admonishing him to be more careful in the future. So we're not offering an account of what actually happened. We're not really talking about his failure to sink this putt, or his failure to try. Of course, there's no doubt that such admonishments about the future can have effects. But these effects are perfectly in harmony with the truth of determinism. There is, in fact, nothing about determinism that prevents us from urging one another, or ourselves, to do things differently in the future, or from recognizing that such exhortations often work. The things we say to one another and to ourselves are simply part of the chain of causes that determine how we think and behave. But can we blame the best golfer on earth for missing an easy putt? No. Can we blame him for not trying hard enough? Again, I think the answer is no unless blaming him is just a way of admonishing him to try harder in the future. For us to consider him truly responsible for missing a putt or for failing to try, we would need to know that he could have acted other than he did. It's not enough to say that he could have sunk this putt or tried harder as a general matter in similar situations. 
Could he have sunk that very putt, the one he actually missed? Could he have tried harder? His failure on both counts was determined by the state of the universe, and by his nervous system in particular. Of course, it's not irrational to treat him as someone with the general ability to make putts of this sort, and therefore to urge him to try harder next time. And it would be irrational to admonish a person who lacked any such ability. So we're right to believe that this distinction between being a good and bad golfer has important implications. And the distinction between being a good and bad person has important moral implications. With normal people, it makes sense to treat them like they have the general capacity to behave well. And when they lapse, it makes sense to admonish them to behave better in the future, and perhaps to punish them, both for the effect this will have on their future behavior and as a deterrence for others. But there is a paradox here. People who have the most ability, or the most self-control, the most opportunity, the most knowledge, and so forth, would seem to be the most blameworthy when they fail to behave well. When the world's best golfer misses a three-foot putt, there's a much greater temptation to say that he really should have made it than there is in the case of a bad golfer. But his failure is actually more anomalous. Something must have gone really wrong if a person of his ability missed so easy a putt. And the best golfer on earth doesn't stand to benefit much from being admonished to try harder in the future. So in some ways, holding a person responsible for his failures seems to make less and less sense the more competent he actually is. After all, these are precisely the people about whom a specific failure says the least. It's the least reflective of who they are or who they've been. I mean, if the Dalai Lama winds up in a clock tower with a rifle and a few thousand rounds of ammunition and starts killing people at random, you can be sure something has gone very wrong with his brain. Where is the responsibility in this? So I would argue that holding people responsible for their actions makes no sense apart from the effects that doing this will have on them and on the rest of society in the future. So considerations of deterrence and rehabilitation and keeping dangerous people off the streets, all of these are pragmatic concerns about future states of the world. Therefore, the notion of moral responsibility is always forward-looking. Now, it seems to me that certain moral intuitions begin to relax the moment we take a wider picture of causality into account. Once we recognize that even the most terrifying people are, in a very real sense, unlucky to be who they are, the logic of hating them, as opposed to fearing them and restraining them, begins to unravel. Once again, even if you believe that every human being harbors a soul, the picture doesn't change. Anyone born with the soul of a psychopath has been profoundly unlucky. So one of the consequences of seeing the world this way is that it reduces hatred, which, all things being equal, seems like a very good thing. It also increases empathy and compassion. And it can do this even for the worst people on earth. Take someone like Uday Hussein, Saddam Hussein's eldest son. He's one of the most odious people I can think of. This was a man who, when he would see a wedding in progress in Baghdad, he would descend upon it with his bodyguards and rape the bride. Sometimes he would torture and kill the bride. He did this on more than one occasion. Now, whatever you think about the ethics of the war in Iraq, it seems to me that given that this monster couldn't be captured 
it was a very good thing that we killed him. Unless you are a total pacifist, you have to admit that this is what guns and bombs are for. To kill people like Uday Hussein. But simply walk back the timeline of his life. And think about him as a four-year-old boy. He might have been an odd child, and even a scary one. He might actually have been born a psychopath. I don't know. But he was also a very unlucky boy. He had Saddam Hussein as a father. How unlucky can you get? He was the four-year-old boy who was going to become the psychopath Uday Hussein, through no fault of his own. If it had been possible to help him at any point along the way, when he was four or five or six or seven, that would have been the right thing to do, and compassion would have been the appropriate motive. At what age would compassion cease to be the appropriate motive? Would it be wrong to feel compassion for the 18-year-old Uday Hussein? He was just as unlucky as the four-year-old. So taking a wider view of the causality here is a doorway into feeling compassion even for the worst people who have ever lived. And the irony is that if you want to be like Jesus and love your enemies, or at least not hate them, one way to do it is to think about the larger web of causality in scientific terms. Now, I'm not saying it would be easy to adopt this perspective if you or someone you love has been the victim of a violent crime. But it is possible to see the world this way. And I believe it's more accurate to see the world this way. And here I'm talking about how we should view things in our more dispassionate moments, which is the place from which we have to make public policy. To see how fully our moral intuitions must shift, consider what would happen if we discovered a cure for evil. Imagine that every relevant change in the brain can be made cheaply and painlessly and safely. Imagine the cure could be put directly into the food supply, like vitamin D. So evil is now just a nutritional deficiency. If we imagine a cure for evil exists, we can see that our retributive impulse is morally flawed. I mean, what could it possibly mean to say that a person is so bad, so evil, that he deserves to have the cure for evil withheld. Would it make any sense to withhold surgery from a murderer with a brain tumor as a punishment if we knew that the brain tumor was the actual cause of his violence? Of course not. The implications of this seem inescapable. The urge for retribution depends upon our not understanding the hidden causes of human behavior. So our morality in this regard rests on ignorance. Recall David Deutsch's point about the power of knowledge here. Sufficient knowledge would allow us to do anything compatible with the laws of nature. Sufficient knowledge about the causes of human evil would give us a cure for human evil. And then we would see how deranged it would be to withhold the cure as punishment for prior acts of evil. It really does seem that our morality in this respect rests simply on ignorance. I think it's safe to say that no one ever argued for free will because it holds such great promise as an abstract idea. The idea of free will emerges from a felt experience, albeit one that depends on our not paying close attention to how experience arises. At the moment, the only philosophically respectable way to defend free will is to endorse a view known as compatibilism and argue, in essence, that free will is compatible with the truth of determinism. 
Compatibilists like my friend the philosopher Daniel Dennett generally claim that a person is free as long as he is free from any outer or inner compulsion that would prevent him from acting on his actual desires and intentions. So if a man wants to commit murder and does so because of this desire, well then that's all the free will you need. But from both a moral and scientific perspective, this seems to miss the point. Where is the freedom in doing what one wants when one's very desires are the product of prior events that one had absolutely no hand in creating? From my point of view, compatibilism is just a way of saying that a puppet is free as long as he loves his strings. Now, compatibilists tend to push back here. They say that even if our thoughts and actions are the product of unconscious causes, they're still our thoughts and actions. Anything that your brain does or decides, whether consciously or not, is something that you have done or decided. So, on this account, the fact that we can't always be aware of the causes of our actions does not negate free will, because our unconscious neurophysiology is just as much us as our conscious thoughts are. But this seems like a bait and switch. This trades a psychological fact, the subjective experience of being a conscious agent, for an abstract idea of ourselves as persons. The psychological truth is that most of us feel identical to, or in control of, a certain channel of information in our conscious minds. And we are wrong about this. The you that you take yourself to be isn't in control of anything. Imagine that we live in a world where more or less everyone believed in the lost kingdom of Atlantis. The compatibilists come along and offer comfort. They assure us that Atlantis is real. And it is, in fact, the island of Sicily. And then they go on to argue that Sicily answers to most of the claims that people have made about Atlantis. Obviously, not every popular belief survives translation here, because some beliefs about Atlantis are quite crazy. But those that really matter, or should matter, on their account, are easily mapped on to what is, in fact, the largest island in the Mediterranean. So the compatibilists then consider their work more or less done, and then they tell the scientists to just get busy investigating the wonders of Sicily. The truth, however, is that much of what causes people to be so enamored of Atlantis, in particular the idea that an advanced civilization disappeared underwater, can't be squared with our understanding of Sicily, or of any other spot on Earth. So people are confused, and their confusion has very real consequences. And compatibilists almost never acknowledge the ways in which Sicily isn't like Atlantis at all, and they don't appear interested when these differences become morally salient. This is what strikes me as so wrong-headed about compatibilism. Again, to remind you of what is at stake here. Ordinary people want to feel philosophically justified in hating their enemies and viewing them as the ultimate cause of their evil. But this moral attitude is always vulnerable to our getting more information about the real causes of human behavior. And in situations where the causes of a person's behavior become too clear, our feelings about their responsibility begin to shift. This is why I said that fully understanding the brain of a normal person would be analogous to finding an exculpatory tumor in it. Again, I'm not claiming that there's no difference between a normal person and one with impaired self-control. A normal person will be responsive to certain incentives and punishments, and an impaired person won't be. And that is all the justification we need to incentivize or deter normal people, and to lock up people we can't control in any other way. But something in our moral attitude does change 
when we catch sight of these antecedent causes. And it should change. We should admit that a person is unlucky to be given the genes and life experience that doom him to psychopathy. Again, that doesn't mean we can't lock him up. But hating him is not rational, given a complete understanding of how he came to be who he is. It's perfectly natural, but it's not rational. Feeling compassion for him, on the other hand, could be rational, in the same way that we could feel compassion for him as a child who was destined to become a psychopath. Compatibilists try to save free will by asserting that you are more than your conscious self. You're identical to the totality of what goes on inside your body, whether you're conscious of it or not. But you can't honestly take credit for your unconscious mental life. In fact, you're making countless unconscious decisions at this moment with organs other than your brain, but you don't feel responsible for these decisions. Are you producing red blood cells right now? Your body is doing this, hopefully. But if it decided to stop doing this, you would be the victim of this change, not its cause. To say that you are responsible for everything that goes on inside your skin, because it's all, quote, you, is to make a claim that bears absolutely no relationship to the feelings of agency and moral responsibility that have made the idea of free will a problem for philosophy in the first place. The truth is, is that we feel or presume an authorship over our thoughts and actions that is illusory. How can we be free as conscious agents if everything that we consciously intend is caused by events in our brain that we did not intend and of which we are entirely unaware? We can't. So what does all this mean? Well, first, here's what it doesn't mean. Once again, people often confuse determinism with fatalism. And this gives rise to questions like, if everything is determined, why should I do anything? Why not just sit back and see what happens? Why not just throw the oars out of the boat and drift through life? Again, this is a sign of confusion. To sit back and see what happens is itself a choice that will produce its own consequences. It's also extremely difficult to do. Just try to stay in bed all day waiting for something to happen. You'll soon feel a very strong impulse to get up and do something. And the only way to continue to stay in bed will be to resist this impulse. Doing nothing eventually becomes a lot harder than doing something. The choices we make in life are as important as most people think they are. They are part of the stream of causality. And fatalism, the idea that the future will be whatever it will be, regardless of what we think and do, is clearly false. And yet the next choice you make will come out of a wilderness of prior causes that you, the conscious witness of your experience, cannot see and did not bring into being. From the perspective of your conscious mind, you are no more responsible for the next thing you think, and therefore do, than you are for the fact that you were born into this world. You have not built your mind. And in the moments where you seem to build it, when you make an effort to change yourself, or to acquire knowledge, or to perfect a skill, a skill like mindfulness, for instance, the only tools at your disposal are those that you have inherited from moments past. You are no more responsible for the structure of your brain in this moment than you are for your height. But I'm not saying that we should just blame our parents for everything that goes wrong in our lives and make no effort to improve ourselves. It is possible to change. In fact, 
viewing oneself as a system that is perpetually open to influence makes change seem even more possible. You are by no means condemned to be the person you were yesterday. In fact, you can't be that person. The self, in the sense of this term that actually makes sense, isn't a stable entity. Rather, it's a process. This is what makes growth possible. But subjectively speaking, the unfolding of our lives is a fundamentally mysterious process. None of us truly know how we arrived at this moment, and we don't know what's coming next. This might sound scary to some of you, but recognizing this can be quite liberating. The present moment is a genuine mystery. You are simply discovering what your life is in every moment. But our choices do matter, and there are ways to make wiser ones. We can read good books and surround ourselves with smart people, and there's no telling how much good information might change us and improve our choices in life. But we cannot choose what we choose, and if it ever appears that we do, for instance, after going back and forth between two options, we do not choose to choose what we choose. There is a regress here that always ends in darkness. We always take a first step or a last one for reasons that are bound to remain subjectively mysterious. To say that I could have done otherwise is merely to think the thought I could have done otherwise after doing whatever I in fact did. And to declare my freedom in this context is really just a way of saying, I don't know why I just did that, but I didn't mind doing it, and I'd be happy to do it again. So to conclude, I want to bring this back to direct experience. It's generally argued that our sense of free will presents a compelling mystery. On the one hand, we just can't make sense of it in scientific terms. On the other, we feel that we are the authors of our thoughts and actions. As I've said, I think this starting point is itself a symptom of confusion. The problem is not merely that free will makes no sense objectively. It makes no sense subjectively, either. Not only are we not as free as we think we are, we don't feel as free as we think we do. Our sense of our own freedom results from our not paying attention to the nature of experience. Thoughts and intentions simply arise in the mind. What else could they do? So the truth about us is stranger than many people suppose. As I said, it's not merely that free will is an illusion. In my view, the illusion of free will is itself an illusion. There is no illusion of free will. In fact, there's another way in which this notion that free will is an illusion is confused. If free will were an illusion in the ordinary sense, it would have to be simulating some state of the world. But given the way causes arise, it seems that there's nothing that this idea of free will could be an illusion of. There's no semblance of anything obscuring what's actually happening. What's actually happening is in plain view. As I've said, there's no way to describe causality such that the idea of free will could make sense. Neither determinism nor randomness, nor any combination of the two, cashes out this idea of free agency. Under determinism, you lose the free part, and under randomness, you lose the agency. Now, some of you might still think that this view of life sounds depressing. It seems to take something away from us. And it does. It takes away an egocentric view of life. 
but this can be tremendously liberating. We are not truly separate. We are linked to each other, and to our own history, to the distant past, even, and to everything around us. We are part of a system, many systems, in fact, and therefore what we do actually matters. The fact that there's no frontier between ourselves and the world, or between our own minds and the minds of others, makes what we think and do more important rather than less. You can't take credit for your talents, but it matters that you use them. You can't truly be blamed for your flaws, but it matters that you correct them. Pride and shame don't make much sense in the final analysis, but they weren't much fun anyway. These are isolating emotions. What does make sense is a commitment to well-being, to improving your life and the lives of everyone around you. Love and compassion make sense. There is still a difference between happiness and suffering, and love consists in wanting others to be happy. And of course, none of what I've said about free will makes social and political freedom any less important. The freedom to do what one wants and to not do otherwise is just as valuable as everyone thinks it is. Having a gun to your head is still a problem worth solving wherever intentions come from. But the idea that we as conscious beings are deeply responsible for the character of our mental lives and for our subsequent behavior is simply impossible to map on to reality, whether the reality of the world or the reality of our experience. And if we want to be guided by reality rather than by fantasy, our beliefs about ourselves eventually have to change.